Well, today as a congregation, we are learning two new songs, the one we just sung and the one we'll sing at the end of the sermon before the supper. Both of them are old, so you can tell they're my favourites because they're old. The one after the supper, well, the one after the sermon is Abide With Me. That's, that's an old hymn. It's to a slightly different tune and we're going to sing it together and, and, and I pray learn things and help memorise things, digest things and sing things from today's sermon through the week. I want to show you the first stanza, the first verse that's on the screen there from Abide With Me. Um, We've already sung, of course, A Christian's Hope Can Never Fail. It's by a ministry of Red Mountain Presbyterian Church. Abide With Me is by Indelible Grace, this, the new tune we're going to sing. It's another Presbyterian ministry that has us thinking about the deep things of God in song. As you look at those words there, as we listen to them, they don't just sound good. I like them because they resound in my life. They actually reverberate, they echo throughout. These things are true. As you sing this song, you realise this is true of my life. When I sing, I realise how true it is. Abide with me. Fast falls the even tide. In other words, fast comes the end of my life. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail, and comforts flee, help of the helpless, abide with me. You'll note that my sermon of serving you today from God's Word Preached has the references in the title. The title of this sermon is taken from that line, help of the helpless, abide with me. The introduction on page five, I think is it of the service sheet, has the darkness deepens. Because that's often where we start in our week, in our life. Have you had one of those weeks? I know I have. We all do. A week where things seem to start out okay, but especially it starts out okay if I pretend that my problems will go away. But then the anxiety that I can have, which I don't know about you, but maybe it's similar. Anxiety for me, anxiousness feels like, it feels like the sound speakers, the sound system is still on. It's not playing a song, but there's that gentle hum that runs through the whole time. And then something goes wrong, something doesn't go my way, and I fall in a heap. A week where I feel helpless and the darkness deepens. And other comforts other places where I might go to get some comfort, some joy, some consolation, well, they flee. They, they, they seem like pillowcases without pillows in them. Empty promises that deflate. I've had weeks and seasons where I've had a troubled heart, even as I serve as a pastor, and I forget and forego that throughout it all, the Lord, the Lord in his word is the one who speaks to troubled hearts. We want this culture here at Reforming where we actually have a culture of honesty. For those who say my help comes from the Lord are those who can say, I need help. But often what happens for us as Christians, even the church, 
is we think we have to pretend we've got it all together. We think we have to pretend we're okay. And you don't have to pretend anymore, friends. You don't have to pretend you're okay. It's all good. You can be honest here because of all the places in the world, it's the church who is a bunch of people who are all sick in need of the doctor who is Jesus, who all get anxious, who all need help, who all knows what it is to have the darkness deepen in their life, who all can say, abide with me, help of the helpless. And what we need to do, what I need to often do, when the darkness deepens, deepens, is simply listen to him. Is listen to him. And as we listen to him and his word here in John 15, I think there's a question we can ask, which is a, it's actually, I think, the question that the, the passage raises. The question that this scene and these words raise for us is what difference does Jesus make to our troubled lives? What difference does Jesus make to our troubled lives? We pick up this scene here in John 15. In one long scene we've been in for a little while, because unlike the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they're called Synoptic, think, um, I use the illustration of a Synchromesh gearbox, they're all similar, but I know some of us might not be that way inclined, so think syncing your phone. They're synced. So Matthew, Mark and Luke are all very similar, and so therefore when we come into the, the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's kind of at the end of the Gospels, isn't it? But, but here in John it's different, because in John... The night before he's betrayed is one extended dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. And here we pick it up, Jesus is still talking. On the evening before his death, he's talking with his disciples and they're listening and they're learning Christ. They've lived with him, they've followed him, they've served with him, they've learned from him, they love him because they know he loves them. But now we read in last week's episode, they've got troubled hearts. We saw it twice, in fact. They have troubled hearts. And why have they got troubled hearts? Because their very friend who's been with them through all the times darkness has deepened has just said, time's up. Time's up and he's going. His hour has come. And when he says that, the anxiety in the room just increases. They have troubled hearts. So Jesus comforts them. We saw last week he speaks about the knowledge of having the triune God in their lives, and here he tells them about him, God the Son, he uses the last of his I am statements where he says in John 15 verse 1, he comforts them with these words, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now why does Jesus say this right now? Why does he turn and say this right now? Well, it's got a big context. It's got the context of the moment, but it's got a monumental context of the Old Testament. And that's why we always read each week a cross-reference passage that relates to the passage being preached. Our cross-reference passage today, as you'll note, was from Isaiah. And in Isaiah 5 and in other places in the Old Testament, we actually see the reason that Jesus speaks about being the true vine. We'll get to that in a moment, but for here, the immediate context is John chapter 14, verse 30. Have a look there. 
14 verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus has been talking and all of a sudden he says, now it's time to leave the room. They've been in the upper room and he says, rise. They're going to walk through Jerusalem from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he says, rise, let up. Let us go, he's talking and walking with them. Jesus does this a lot. He walks and talks to them as they go. And he tells them of a spiritual showdown that is about to happen. It's gloves off and it's ready to happen now. The ruler of the world is coming, Jesus says. In this moment... He says he is coming. Notice that. Verse 30, 14 verse 30, John 14 verse 30. The ruler of this world is coming. He is coming. He is coming. It's like in Lord of the Rings, the drums. They are coming. They are coming. Jesus is saying he's coming, he's coming now. That old deceiver, that ancient serpent, Satan, he is coming He has already filled Judas with rebellion and perverse thoughts of betrayal. He is coming. He is coming. Yet with Jesus, he says, he has no claim on me. He's already taken Judas. He will not take Jesus. Everything in this moment, Jesus is going towards his execution by crucifixion. And yet the whole time, Jesus is sovereign. The whole time, it's his plan. It's his purposes. His will. He willingly goes to this cross. And as he talks to his disciples, he has no time for platitudes. No time for self-help tips. No time for, let's think about what you might do tomorrow or next week. What's for dinner? What's for breakfast? He's, He's intent on getting them to hear what they need to hear in this moment. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And here, just as he's about to depart, he teaches them about what it means to have union with Christ. This is a doctrine we often call union with Christ. It's beautiful. To have union with Christ is not just to know who he is or I believe that Jesus was a real person. To have union with Christ is to abide with him. It's to live in him. Your life is resting in his life. It's to remain in him. Just as Jesus said last week in chapter 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We live in Christ because he lives in us. And this, of course, goes back to the Old Testament. This is the way it was meant to be. In the Old Testament, God says that he planted Israel to be a vine. And that vine was meant to grow in God and and his word and flourish that way. But as we saw in Isaiah 5, this vine, Israel, that was planted to be a blessing to the world, instead grows wild and weedy and unfruitful because it wants to grow without the God who planted it. It wants to live its life apart from God, not abiding in God. So now Jesus teaches us, Where Israel should have been that vine, Jesus is that vine, and we are the branches. Have a look in verses 1 to 8. Jesus 
there speaks of him being this true and better Israel, this true and better vine, and that God the Father is the vine dresser. So we see in verse 2, this makes sense, therefore. Every branch, like Israel, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, there's discussion and difference on what it means to take away or take up there in verse 2. But the context is clear. There are two ways to live your life. You either abide in Jesus or you don't. Now, some people want to say, well, I know who Jesus is, and they might form some sort of mental connection to him, and they assent, oh, yeah, he's a... Yeah, he, he seemed like a nice guy, seemed like maybe he was God. I'm agnostic on the topic, they might say. But there's a difference between that life lived and the life that says, I believe in him, I have my life in him, I abide in him. This is a great viticultural and spiritual reality. See, a branch that is connected to the vine but is dead is fruitless. We know this in viticulture, that's that's, by the way, it's growing grapes, just in case. We know this in horticulture, which I know nothing about. Don't ask me about fruit trees. You know, I just eat the fruit, thanks. What is that? Nectarine? Fine. But we know this in agricultural scenes. So we know this. It's possible to have plants that have branches attached to them that kind of want to come across as being a branch here, but they're dead. They're fruitless. They want to look like they're a branch, but they're not abiding in the vine. And such a branch cannot bear fruit. This is old Israel's problem. They started to seemingly be in the vine, but not all were of the vine, not all were abiding. And so Jesus says, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the growing question is now, what keeps us abiding in the vine? How is it we get to abide in the vine? The answer is in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Here's what's fascinating. The word for you are clean, right? Katharoi, is very similar to the word for he prunes just before it, right? Katharai. As I say those words, can you guess what English word we get from those words? Catharsis, cathartic, cleansing, cleaning. Why is this important? Notice this, Jesus says you're clean, in other words, equivalent of you're pruned. You're clean, you're pruned, why? Because of the word I've spoken to you, the word you've believed. How do you get in the vine? How do you continue to abide in the vine? You hear and believe the gospel word. You believe the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and continue to believe it and build your life on the gospel. And as you do so, you abide in the vine. See, the gospel is the revelation and declaration of who Jesus is, the word made flesh, what he's come to do, to die in the flesh for the forgiveness of sins of those who are stuck in the flesh. 
And he calls all those who believe children of God, and now he calls us branches. So when you believe in Jesus, you've got life in Jesus, you are actually joined to Jesus. You have union with Christ. Now, Christianity is not a club you join or something you just sign up for. You actually join in the life, the very life of God our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Which, friends, this means something else for us in the room who are not yet in Jesus. See, if you don't yet believe in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, no matter if you even you sort of want to associate with or say, oh, I'm a branch, I'm kind of attached around here. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe the gospel word and have your life in Jesus, you don't abide in him and you can't produce anything. And Jesus says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Friends, there is a day coming when you and I will see that happening with our own eyeballs in human history. We will see in reality where all the metaphors used by Jesus here become a reality of people who don't believe in Jesus. Dear friends, Jesus loves the lost. He loves you. And so do we. So when we speak of this, when we hear what Jesus is saying to us, his church, we want you to believe in him too. To join in his life, to not wither forever. For when you look to Jesus and you see that what is coming for him, do you see what Jesus is, is facing? He keeps saying, he's coming. He's coming. The hour has come. When you see what is coming for Jesus, what is coming for Jesus? Absolute pure evil is coming for Jesus. When you see the absolute evil personified in Satan himself coming for Jesus, and then you see what he does with evil, he goes into the bowels of evil and turns it upside down, and he turns what is heinous and horrible in the cross and he does it by taking your guilt your evil your shame your sin in upon himself on that cross so that you can be declared innocent and guilt-free forever when he does that you see that's power that's the power that one can see evil coming for him and says i've got this and he goes into evil your evil and totally deals with it forever do you see who jesus is jesus is not the club president asking you to sign up for his club (laughs) jesus is god saying come in friends come in to me believe in me he is the vine he is the vine who at that cross was thrown into the fire for you for you to abide in him. That's good news. That's amazing grace. And Reforming Church, what would it look like for us to abide? Because notice this, when Jesus uses the phrase, abide in me, it's plural. It's a plural imperative. It's not just to the individual here, it's to the church, to his disciples, plural, all of us, for us to abide in him. Look at the difference that Jesus makes to our troubled lives now. Look at verse 5. 
I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words, and you ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. You see this? We have the power of actually making a difference in the world. Everyone wants to make a difference, but look at the power we're given. Jesus says this, here's the power, ask for whatever you wish. Now, of course, people have taken that in all sorts of unhelpful directions. Ah, so Jesus is like Santa Claus, we think. Well, by the way, Santa Claus is not real. It's actually your parents who did it. I hope I'm not the first to blow that bubble. No, Jesus is not like Santa Claus. He's not like a vending machine. He's not like a genie where you just rub the bottle and get whatever you want. Jesus is saying, that stuff you could ask for, that's... that's you know, that's not what you really need. What do we really need? Like, what is the whatever you wish? What would you really want? In a life of darkness deepening, in a life of sin and death, what is the whatever you would ask for? What would you ask for? A new pony? Would you ask for a better car? Or three? A bigger house? Like darkness is deepening, life and death, you're hurtling towards your eternity. What would you ask for? Help of the helpless, abide with me. You would ask for yourself and for your family and for your friends to abide in Jesus. And we have been given that ability to ask. That as we ask in his name, we saw this actually in chapter 14. Ask whatever in my name, I will do it. We ask according to his character, for his glory. We ask for those greater works. We're not asking for prosperity. We're asking for people's very lives. That the gospel power that saved us and brings us to abide would go to those who need to abide too before the time of the burning comes. Jesus has given the church a great privilege. Prayer. If you hung around us for a little while, you know that I try and get something going on occasion, which is hard to get going. It's a prayer service. So I'd like to have gathered worship in the morning and gathered prayer in the evening. I know we've got crazy busy lives, but I'm trying to find a spot in our week that we could, we used to try once a month, fortnightly, weekly. Who knows? But I'm asking the Lord, help us find a spot that we would see the church come together, the plural imperative of the us abiding, and that we wouldn't just go, you know what, I like to kind of cruise in my life and do other things, I'm pretty busy. But we would actually come together and pray together. There is great value in praying in our homes. There is great value in praying in our groups. There is great value in praying in private, and Jesus tells us to do all that. But when you see the church pray in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when you see people take up the plural imperative, the whole church gets together. Not just the group, not who can fit in a lounge room or who can fit in a triplet, but the whole church gets together and they pray. Because that is the privilege and power that God has given us in Jesus' name. Things happen, whatever we ask for. Wouldn't that be an amazing vision to set before our church? We could even bring our kids. And they could be noisy all around us. But they could watch their parents 
their church prioritise the ministry of prayer. Jesus says we get to do that. And Jesus does this because he loves us. He shows us this because he loves us. And he gives us his privilege for our joy. You see this in verses 9 to 11. Friends, Jesus doesn't give us the privilege of prayer to bore us. Like Jesus is not thinking, these people are too excited. Like they're too excited. What I need to do is just calm the tempo down in the room. So I'll give them a church and some prayer meetings and some sermons and just want to calm them down a little bit. Like we're not kids in the playpen that need to be told shh, shh, shh all the time. That's not our problem, is it? Our problem is we come from a week of bored lives. And we try and find things in our life to excite us. But they never do. We pick up the toy and then it just sort of, the shine comes off it. But Jesus here gives us privilege to abide in him as a church. It's not to be bored, dull and dead. It's to give us joy. Look at this. Verse 11. John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that you, your joy may be full. And he speaks about Keeping the Father's commandments, keeping Jesus' commandments is to abide in his love. I mean, what is the law about? It's about love. The law doesn't save us, but it shows us how to love. Where is our joy found? In loving God and loving others, the two great commandments. to, To actually abide in his love produces joy. And reforming, we can do this. We can have this joy. It's on hand. It's on hand, a joy that is you get, that you receive because you know Jesus loves you and you can love him. And you can then produce the fruit of that love. Verses 12 to 17. As they rise and go, they walk out of Jerusalem and they're walking to that great second garden of history. In Genesis, we saw the first great garden moment of history. Big things happen in gardens, don't they? Here is the second one. And as they walk out to the garden, Jesus turns in verse 12 and reiterates, repeats a command he's given. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Love. To love as he has loved us. Friends, our society, and if you've been watching the news over the last 24 hours of the last week, our society trips over itself trying to define love. I don't think we know what we're talking about anymore. Our society is so confused as to what actually is love. Like we speak about love is this expression... But if you don't agree with this expression, we're going to be really angry with you. That doesn't feel very loving to me. But when you look at the love that Jesus has for us, he can love you and disagree with you. Isn't that love? We do it with our kids. I disagree with our child running across the road. I really disagree with that being a good idea at all. I love my child so much. I disagree with you doing that. Stop running across the road. Now, the child doesn't like me necessarily doing that in the first place because what better playground is there than a highway? 
It's nice and flat, it's open, balls go across it easily. And so do cars, is the problem. Jesus loves us, and when he disagrees with how we want to go in life, often we know he loves us because his word says something. And we know he loves us because his word says something in the commandments of love, and then when we fail at it, he tells us he comes down and takes the fall for us. You see, where our world is confused about love, Jesus brings clarity. Christ brings clarity. For love, do you notice here, love is not defined by what it is. It's defined by who it is. With Jesus, you don't ultimately see love just in what, but in who. Love is seen, expressed and experienced with perfection in the person of Jesus Christ. Love is as deep as Jesus has shown as laying his life down for another. So when we get to verse 13, that makes total sense now. Jesus said several times, love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Verse 13 is a preemptive preview. It's like the movie trailer before the movie of what's about to happen. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. There are militaries and mottos around the world that pick this up and use it, put on the side of an aeroplane or the, the side of a, a military unit. You know, greater love has none than this. Someone lay their life down for their friends. But if you rip it out of context, it's not just in the context of the whole of the Bible, it's not just his friends who start out being his friends that Jesus dies for, of course, it's his enemies. There is no greater love than Jesus' love. There is no greater sacrifice than the perfect one dying on the cross for imperfect sinners like us. And he does this because he knows what happened in the first garden. He was there back at the beginning. Jesus has come. He's come to bring us back. And so he says in verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I call you friends. For what I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Do you see how amazing this is? In the Old Testament, there's a couple of rare times that God calls someone his friend. So now Abraham is called God's friend. Moses, Exodus 33 verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And now Jesus is saying to you, if you abide in him, you believe in him, he is saying, you're my friend. God is saying you're his friend. And friends share what they love. And so we, we actually share in what Jesus loves. What he loves, we love. Which means we do love one another because Jesus loves one another. We do love our enemies and the lost because Jesus loves his enemies and the lost. We do want to love by laying down our personal preferences, our pride, where we get our self put out of place because we feel like we should have been more important or in that discussion or consultation or discuss, whatever it is, we put it aside because Jesus does that. And notice that as he chooses us, not just so we're safe and sound, he chooses us to bear the fruit of this ministry together. So let's look at a few things of our church's ministry. What does evangelism look like now? What does it look like without love? 
What does evangelism look like without love? Just winning arguments. Evangelism without love is just debating, duking it out until you see who wins. But not with love. Because love with evangelism requires patience, kindness. It takes time to listen to people. Instead of waiting to see when you can get the quick whip in. Here I come. You said something. Here I go. Bam! I win. Put that on YouTube. That's, That's not love. No. That's not listening to someone with love. That's just winning arguments. Anyone can do that. But someone empowered by abiding in Jesus and loving like Jesus does it differently. What is ministry and serving without love? Burdens and self-righteousness. I do all this stuff and no one else does any other stuff and I do all this stuff and why aren't they doing more stuff? What is prayer without love? A shopping list? Prayer without adoring the God who has saved you and brought you into the vine? Prayer without that kind of love for him and love for others is just a list. But bearing the fruit of love changes everything for us. What difference does Jesus make to our troubled lives? Friends, to start with, we can't deal with the problems in our life properly without him. It amazes me still that sometimes I try. And I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, but I imagine you're like that too, aren't you? Like we all, we're all the same. Like there, there are times when I think, I can fix this, I can deal with this, and it just happens again and again, and it takes me, because I'm a slow learner, a couple of days, and other people's help in the church, to go, no, no, actually, you need to pray about this. And we can't help others until we first receive the help we've been given in Christ by abiding in him. There's no way I'm going to help another branch if I'm not abiding in him who is the vine. We could be doing all the right things in human sight. We could even look like we're living as Christians, but have no spiritual life if we're not abiding in him. We could do things like read the Bible to know things, And have big words to explain things. Watch me bust out this word that summarizes this doctrine. And be impressed. We could do all that. And not be changed by those things. Not abide in Jesus. We could be busy organizing things. Let's get this done and that done. And we'll organize all these things. And action all these things. And have all these projects. And yet not be fruitful in praying for many people. Isn't it possible that the ministry of our church could possibly not abide in the vine if we're not mindful that we need to keep abiding in the vine, hearing Jesus' plural imperative, abide in him? If you ask my family, I am the worst pruner in the world. Like if there was a sport at the Olympics for pruning bushes, I would lose. I'd be the guy on YouTube that's like, look at this guy. Oh, 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 he's going to prune that bush. Oh, no. That's me. 
Case in point, we had a working bee recently and I was pruning some bushes out the front because we couldn't quite see the sign. If you were there for that event, disaster. If you know someone who was at that event and you weren't, ask them. I'm the worst pruner in the world. I know nothing about pruning, right? And often our kids, who are just like me, come in from the garden some days, sometimes. They come in from mum's garden that she has meticulously made, planted and cared for. And they come running in with all good intent, with flowers in their hands that they've cut from mum's plants. And I can tell they've got all the pruning skills of dad. And I'm like, oh, that's lovely. Mum's going to be so pleased. (gasps) I'll tell her it's my fault. And then we put these flowers in a vase and they might have a stem that's about half a centimetre long and they wither. You see, cutting flowers off a plant or pruning anything to me looks counterintuitive. Pruning to me looks like my kids have cut the flowers for mum and I can't glue them back on. That's what pruning looks like to me. So I just don't get it, I don't understand it. So how much more can we be thankful that we don't do the pruning in our spiritual lives? But our Father in heaven does, who is an expert pruner and he prunes because he loves us. Our Father in heaven has joined us to Jesus so that we abide in Christ so that he can prune us, not that we get pruned to wither in a vase. Notice how he prunes us. He prunes us so we're still joined to the vine. And therefore, if you are abiding in Christ and joined to the vine, being pruned is not really all that painful in the end. Because if you draw your life and joy from the vine, being pruned is like, well, that's, that's, that's great because I'm still joined to Jesus. You can be pruned when you abide in Christ. It actually helps you grow and flourish. And we see the Father often prunes things in our life that we were tempted to get joy in life from, that we really shouldn't have. We get pruned from them so we get to have joy in life deeply with the sap that comes from being in Jesus. He prunes away things that would inhibit our growth. He prunes away things that would spiritually be detrimental to us. He cuts away our unhealthy habits. He helps our prayerlessness by giving us things to pray about, giving us people to pray about. He prunes us so that we'd be fruitful. See, often we try and abide in ourselves, but we haven't got the ability to grow anything. It's Christ who makes us fruitful, and the Father is the vine dresser. And so an abiding church is one that, yes, has troubled hearts, but stays joined to the vine that grows, producing the fruit of love with joy, because we are his branches. We're going to turn to the table now of the Lord's Supper. We intentionally call that sharing communion in the Lord's Supper. The Bible calls it the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians and we share this communion, this union with Christ and with one another in this, by faith. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this Lord's Supper, here's what we celebrate and declare in the Gospel. Christ was cut off so that we could abide. Let's thank him. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we praise you, our vine dresser, for joining us to Jesus, for our pruning and fruit bearing. We need to abide in Christ, to believe in him and live daily by faith in him. Please help us, Lord, as we sing, that in our life and death, Lord, abide with me. We pray with thankfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.